Good Monday morning. Air safety in the spotlight after several dangerous incidents over the weekend. And a new train derailment in Ohio. It is March 6th. This is today. Air scares. A flight heading to Florida forced to make an emergency landing after smoke fills the cabin. Chaos. Completely chaos. In Connecticut, severe turbulence kills a passenger on a private jet, while Norfolk Southern faces more outrage in Ohio after yet another train derailment. We'll have the very latest on the investigations. Breaking overnight, violent clash. Protesters in Atlanta attacking officers and damaging property at the construction site of a police training center. This wasn't about a public safety training center. This was about anarchy. And this was about the attempt to destabilize. A closer look at the chaos and the dozens of arrests. State of emergency. Entire neighborhoods in California buried under as much as 10 feet of snow, trapping thousands of residents. They're without, you know, food, power, heat, medications. Some writing messages in the snow, pleading for help. Just ahead, inside the desperate rescue push with the next major storm already taking shape. Life behind bars. Alec Murdoch begins serving his sentence for the murders of his wife and son. This morning, members of the jury with us live, taking us inside the case, their deliberations, and the impact of Murdoch's decision to take the stand in his own defense. Those stories plus palace intrigue. King Charles invites Harry and Meghan to his upcoming coronation. Will they attend? A live report from London just ahead. And slap back. Reaction pouring in after Chris Rock takes the stage and finally addresses that incident at the Oscars. Anybody that says words hurt has never been punched in the face. One year later, his very direct message to Will Smith and Jada with this year's Oscars just around the corner. Today, Monday, March 6, 2023. From NBC News, this is Today with Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Kotb, live from Studio 1A in Rockefeller Plaza. And hi, everybody. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to today. It is nice to have you with us. And Hoda, it is nice to have you right back where you belong. <sighs> it's been a tough couple of weeks. You've been dealing with the health issue with your little daughter. Yeah. Uh, my youngest, Hope, um, was in the ICU for a few days and in the hospital for a little more than a week. I'm so grateful she's home. Yeah. She is back home. Uh, I was waiting for that day to come. And we are watching her closely. I'm just so happy. And I'm, you know what I realized too, Savannah, is like when your child is ill, the amount of gratitude you can have for, for people for who helped you out. So um, I'm grateful for the doctors at Wild Cornell who were amazing and the nurses. And I'm grateful to my family and I'm grateful to friends like you who were there every single day. So I want to say thank you for that. I really, I love you. I love you too. Thank you. You have a lot of friends out there. Thank you. We're right thank here you. with you, lifting you up oh, and good. hope too. Okay. Let's thank do you. it. You ready? Yep. Ready. We'll get to the news. We've got these top stories to get to. Major incidents fueling new concerns about the nation's transportation system. A second Norfolk Southern train derailed in Ohio over the weekend, just 200 miles from the site of that toxic disaster. And in the air, a bird strike led a Florida-bound plane to make an emergency land in Cuba. Extreme turbulence in the skies of Connecticut are being blamed for a passenger's death. This happened on a private jet. We've got it all covered. We'll start with NBC's Tom Costello, who covers aviation for us. Tom, good morning to you. 
Good morning. Some very serious incidents over the weekend in Cuba. Smoke filling the cabin when they had an engine explode because of a bird strike. The severe turbulence killing a passenger in a private plane. That is extremely rare and extreme turbulence on a commercial flight. Actor Matthew McConaughey was on that one. Debris and food and luggage thrown about the cabin. Now the NTSB and the FAA are investigating all of those incidents. High drama in the skies over Cuba as smoke filled the cabin of a Southwest flight after departing from Havana for Fort Lauderdale. The airline says the flight was forced to make an emergency landing back in Havana after an apparent bird strike on the plane's nose and engine, the engine catching fire. A big explosion and the plane just shook and then it dropped. It was a, very terrified because a lot of kids and a lot of women. On the runway, anxious passengers seen coughing and visibly shaken <laughs> as firefighters responded to and doused the engine fire. Meanwhile, a separate instance of severe turbulence in the air turned deadly. Requesting medical assistance on the runway. A private CL-30 jet carrying five people on its way to Virginia from New Hampshire encountered severe turbulence on Friday. The pilot diverted the jet from its original route to make an emergency landing in Connecticut. The FAA and NTSB confirming the extreme turbulence caused fatal injuries to a passenger on board. It's not rare to have serious injuries, but to have someone actually die means that uh, something traumatic really must have happened. Meanwhile, the NTSB is investigating and the manufacturer of the jet says it will fully support and provide assistance to all authorities as needed. It comes after yet another mid-air incident late last week. A Lufthansa jumbo jet traveling from Texas to Germany diverted to Dulles Airport outside of Washington, D.C. due to significant turbulence that sent seven passengers to the hospital. Passengers recount people screaming and a flight attendant unable to stabilize himself. One of the drops, he literally completely hit the ceiling and dropped down. On board, actor Matthew McConaughey and his wife, Camilla Alves. The Brazilian model posted about the couple's chaotic experience, writing, I was told the plane dropped almost 4,000 feet, adding, everything was flying everywhere and the turbulence kept on coming. Kind of scary. Back to that situation in Cuba with the bird strike taking out the Southwest engine. That happened on a flight that I was on. We ingested a turkey vulture as we departed out of Sarasota. The engine exploded. Thankfully, no smoke inside the plane. We made an emergency landing in Tampa. But this goes to the point. Planes can fly on a single engine, though clearly you'd like to have two. And remember the situation with the miracle on the Hudson in New York. That flock of geese took out both engines, forcing them to land in the Hudson River. It's very serious. Guys, back to you. Serious and scary to be right there. Tom, thank you very much. As we mentioned, federal investigators are looking into another train derailment in Ohio involving North Norfolk uh, Southern. While there was no chemical spill this time, it's raising new questions just weeks after that toxic derailment in East Palestine. NBC's Jesse Kirsch has that story. Jesse, what are you learning this morning about what was on board? Hoda, good morning. Norfolk Southern says that the train that derailed just behind me over the weekend was carrying hazardous materials. However, the company says that none of the 28 cars that derailed 
were carrying those hazardous materials, which included liquid propane and ethanol. The community's congressman says we may have missed a bullet this time. And this comes as we learn that federal investigators are headed to the scene today while we wait to find out what may have caused this crash. This latest incident between Dayton and Columbus was caught on camera. You can see someone backing their vehicle away from a railroad crossing as multiple cars are coming off the tracks. The Ohio Environmental Protection Agency says that nothing hazardous spilled into the air, to the water, to the soil, And officials say there were no reported injuries and there is no public health threat. However, officials did ask less than a dozen residents within a thousand feet of this derailment site to shelter in place for about nine hours from Saturday into Sunday, Hoda. All right, Jesse Kirsch for us there. Jesse, thank you. We've got breaking news out of Atlanta overnight. Dozens arrested after what's being described as a coordinated criminal attack. It happened at the future site of a police training center. NBC's Blaine Alexander's on the story for us. Blaine, good morning. Well, Savannah, good morning to you. This center has been at the center of controversy for months now. It's something that the city is touting as a state-of-the-art training facility, something that the mayor says will improve community policing. But critics have dubbed it Cop City and say that it will do just the opposite. This was a very violent attack. Overnight in Atlanta, a chaotic clash between protesters and police, all on the site of a planned police training facility. Officials say protesters burned construction vehicles and a trailer and set off fireworks toward officers stationed nearby. This wasn't about a public safety training center. This was about anarchy, and this was about the attempt to destabilize. Police point to a group of what they call outside agitators, saying they left an event nearby, changed into black clothing, and mounted a coordinated attack on construction equipment and police officers. It's just the latest flashpoint after months of demonstrations against the facility, organized under the slogan, Stop Cop City, the planned 85-acre campus just outside of Atlanta. Protesters say they're both concerned about the center's environmental impact and its symbolism as one of the nation's largest law enforcement training centers. Tensions between protesters and police in the city have been at a boiling point for months now, with past demonstrations in January also turning violent and fatal, with one protester killed. We are very fortunate tonight, and for the quick action of the officers, not only to reposition themselves, but immediately to go back into the woods and start making arrests of the individuals. But criminal activity will not be tolerated in Atlanta, nor tolerated in connection with this uh, project. And overnight, one of the groups that opposes that facility put out a statement of their own saying that police used, quote, excessive force to break up what they call a family-friendly music festival. Savannah. All right. Blaine Alexander in Atlanta. Thank you, Blaine. Also this morning, the 2024 presidential race is heating up following a weekend of high-profile appearances. On the Republican side, former President Trump and potential challenger Florida Governor Ron DeSantis delivered dueling speeches, while President Biden traveled to Selma, Alabama, marking the bloody Sunday, uh, Sunday anniversary with a renewed push for voting rights. NBC senior Washington correspondent Hallie Jackson has more on all this. Hey, Hallie, good morning. Hey, Hoda, good morning to you. We are seeing candidates and prospective candidates out making their cases ahead of 2024 in a series of events highlighting how each of them sees the stakes in this presidential race. Coast to coast campaigning this morning from California to Maryland, where Donald Trump on stage at the CPAC conference promised to channel his supporters grievances in 2024. I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. 
After years of pushing election fraud lies and attacking early voting, he's now asking supporters to do just that. Vote early and vote by mail. We have to change our thinking. And facing multiple legal challenges, Mr. Trump insists he'll stay in the race even if indicted. I wouldn't even think about leaving. Uh, These are uh, fake stories. These are horrible. The conservative event clearly Trump territory with CPAC's straw poll, unscientific but considered symbolic, finding 62 percent of attendees backing the former president, 20 percent behind Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who was not at the conservative gathering, instead delivering a speech Sunday at the Reagan Library outside Los Angeles. The sign out front vandalized before his visit with graffiti reading Ron DeFascist. DeSantis framing Florida as the model for conservatives across the country and taking what could be seen as a veiled swipe at Mr. Trump's leadership compared to his own. You didn't see a lot of drama or palace intrigue. What you saw was surgical precision execution day after day after day. DeSantis has not formally announced a 2024 run yet. Neither has President Biden. As head of a widely anticipated re-election announcement, he promotes a Democratic priority in Selma, Alabama, voting rights, commemorating the day in 1965 known as Bloody Sunday, when civil rights advocates pushing for expanding voting access were attacked by police. The right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. It's interesting, Holly, that DeSantis didn't go to that CPAC convention. That's one where a lot of candidates like to go and, you know, people want to see who's who's got potential. Why didn't he go? Um, You know, he he was at this, first of all, Reagan Library speech. He also spoke at a closed door club for growth retreat in Florida. It was at the same time as CPAC. He's not the only one, of course, who skipped CPAC. Former Vice President Mike Pence did also in favor of that Florida event. Nikki Haley, who was officially running for president, appeared at both events. Already, though, the candidates and the potential candidates are looking ahead to the next stops. You've got both Mr. Trump and Governor DeSantis set to visit the key early state of Iowa just in the next week, Savannah. Hallie, here we go. Thank you very much. Uh, Craig joins us now. Good morning. Hey, Savannah. Hold on. Good morning. Welcome back to both of you as well. Uh, folks, there's a dire situation playing out in California right now. People are trapped inside their homes after a, a blizzard that buried the region under a f- feats of snow. Uh, a state of, decla- state of emergency has been declared to help clear those roads, get supplies to the stranded NBC national correspondent Miguel Almaguer joins us from Crestline. That's just east of Los Angeles. Miguel, good morning. Craig, good morning. This is what so many people in mountain communities, both in northern and southern California, face after days of relentless snow. You can see the snow drifts here in some areas are 10, 20 feet high. First responders say they've gotten hundreds of calls every day for help, but these are the nightmare conditions they face and the people who are still trapped in their homes face. This morning, with California battered by more winter weather, some communities remain cut off. Up north, the Sierra Nevada blanketed by up to five feet of snow. And in Southern California, emergency crews are working to plow through up to 10 feet, all falling in the past week. And underneath that mound is my Jeep Wrangler, uh, totally buried. 
thousands live in the San Bernardino Mountains just east of Los Angeles, where back-to-back storms have left roadways blocked, houses buried, and people stranded for days. And now some increasingly desperate residents are running low on supplies. We have neighbors who are panicking. They're without, you know, food, power heat medications the snow even sparking fires possibly caused by gas leaks we've had uh, eight working residential structure fires in the greater lake arrowhead area which is not typical in crestline snow collapsed the roof of the only grocery store in town its parking lot now a makeshift distribution center thank you still many are snowed in and begging for help i mean there's nine and ten foot berms alongside these roads. I don't see that improving for a month. Are you good, sir? You got everything? As those still stuck inside lean on neighbors for basic necessities. People like me are trying to get out that can and go deliver food and hike through six feet of snow to these homes that can't get out, these senior citizens that can't dig themselves out. Now with just days before another storm arrives, it's a race to reach these communities still buried in snow. Today, hundreds of firefighters and even members of California's National Guard are going to be here in the mountains trying to help those who are still stuck. But there's more snow on the way. What everyone needs here are warmer days and some of this snow to melt. Craig. Yeah, see the feet of snow behind you there, Miguel Amelgar. Miguel, thank you. And adding to concerns, the next cross-country storm already taking shape. We've got Dylan in for Al this morning. First check of the forecast. This one going on out west for a while now. It is, and unfortunately, over the next uh, two to three days, we're going to see more storms impact the west coast out in California, especially the central and northern Sierra mountain range, where we could end up with another 12 to 24 inches of snow. So that storm system, it's winding down for right now. It'll really ramp up again later on tonight into tomorrow morning. But we also have another storm system moving across the Great Lakes that's going to bring some snow as well. Also through parts of the Dakotas into Montana. We have some uh, winter weather advisories across Minnesota and Wisconsin, too. Here you see the snow falling in Green Bay, also across most of Michigan, even down into Detroit. We have we have had more of a wintry mix. Now, as this moves to the east, as we go into tonight and tomorrow morning, New York City, New York, northern Pennsylvania, going to be on the colder side of the storm system. So we will see a quick burst of snow and then it moves on pretty quickly. But on the back side of it, winds get very gusty, perhaps gusting up to 20 to 30 miles per hour. So wind chills tomorrow will be down in the 20s. Most of the heavier snowfall, the four to five inches, would be across northwestern Pennsylvania into uh, southern parts of New York State. We could end up, though, with, uh, I'd say, maybe a half an inch up to an inch in parts of New York, even uh, just north of Philadelphia. And that's your latest forecast. All right. Dylan, Dylan. thank you. Still ahead this morning, we've got an inside look at the guilty verdict in the double murder trial of Alec Murdoch as he begins serving his two consecutive life sentences this morning. Three jurors are with us live, ready to speak out for the very first time about a case that gripped the country. Plus, the royal family and the spotlight with an invitation to the king's coronation now extended to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The question, will they accept it? As Harry courts controversy in another new interview, a live report from Buckingham Palace. But first, this is Today on NBC. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash today just go to indeed.com slash today right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast indeed.com slash today conditions apply need to hire you need indeed back now 7 30 on the monday morning march 6 2023 saying hello to these uh, wonderful folks starting the week off in our little corner of the world here at Rockefeller Center. That's a good Monday crowd. Yeah. Get out there in just a few moments. But we're going to start this half hour with the conviction of Alec Murdoch, sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in the killings of his wife and youngest son. Three of the jurors from that closely watched trial are right here with us this morning. We're going to talk to them this morning. But first, NBC's Katie Beck joins us from Columbia, South Carolina, where Murdoch is now beginning two life sentences. Katie, good morning. Good morning, Savannah. Alec Murdoch will be waking up here at the Kirkland Correctional Center, now a convicted murderer facing a life sentence and among some of the most dangerous and violent offenders in the state, according to their website. This is a stunning fall from the prominent and prestigious life he once led, and there are still many swirling questions around the Murdoch family and their potential ties to other unsolved and disturbing cases. This morning, Alec Murdoch is behind bars. Seen here in this new mugshot with a shaved head, the former attorney begins serving two consecutive life sentences for double murder. I agree with the life. There's no joy in any court proceeding, but I think there's relief that the right decision was made. Murdoch found guilty on all charges for killing his wife Maggie and son Paul on the family's sprawling estate in 2021. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. Judge Newman, who had reserved comment during the dramatic six-week trial, speaking candidly Friday, telling Murdoch. And it might not have been you. It might have been the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. He went to a a detox facility after Christmas. Buster Murdoch, who testified that his father struggled with addiction, seen for the first time publicly over the weekend in these DailyMail.com photos, walking dogs in Hilton Head. Questions still remain about the Murdoch family and potential connections to other unsolved deaths. Murdoch is also facing some 100 charges for financial crimes, including stealing millions from his former law firm and clients. Was I also stealing money that I shouldn't have? Yes, sir. The jurors in the case visited Murdoch's hunting property where the murders happened and were presented with mountains of evidence, including a cell phone video that was perhaps the most pivotal. The video filmed on Paul's phone at the dog kennels where Alec's voice is heard in the background, along with Maggie and Paul, just minutes before their murders. Go Burgess, 
Murdoch had repeatedly told authorities he wasn't there that night, but on the stand, admitted the lie. I did lie to them. Well, Alec Murdoch will remain here for at least 30 days where he will be processed and evaluated. He'll then be sent to a maximum security facility to serve out his life sentence. His attorneys say they will be filing an appeal. Savannah. All right, Katie Beck, thank you very much. Joining us now are jurors James McDowell, Gwen Jennerette, and Amy Williams. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. Thank you for being here after an ordeal, a six-week ordeal. You did your jury service, your civic duty. You're here this morning. How does it feel when you realize all of the attention. You knew it was a high-profile case. Did you understand how many people across the country were watching this? I don't think it ever really, you know, hit that it would be this big. Yeah. How do you guys feel? The same. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think it would be this big. Me either. When you yeah, saw the cameras outside the courtroom, though, I mean. But, yeah, but yeah, that's when I realized this is a big ordeal. Yeah. What have people said to you just in the last few days? You know, it's a small town. I mean, people, did they realize, oh, you guys have been on the jury? Have you heard yeah. anything? How, what is the reaction you've heard? So I think that, you know, it kind of spread pretty quickly. So I think that a lot of my friends were very respectful. They didn't try to reach out. You know, they didn't want to talk about the case because they knew I couldn't. Yeah. So I think afterwards, you know, as soon as the verdict came out, everybody was kind of just kind of sending me messages like, you know what's going on yeah yeah you know a lot has uh, been made over the past few days about the speed with which you guys came back with that verdict take take us inside the deliberation room as i understand it not everyone initially thought he was guilty is that right correct that's correct yes yeah, so throughout the case a lot of people had talked about how we didn't have a notepad in the jury room but we did were able to have or we weren't able to have it in the courtroom but we did have them in the jury room so a lot of people would write down questions as we you know went back during break so i think that kind of made the deliberation a little bit more efficient everybody knew the questions they had we were able to get through them quickly let's talk about the case a little bit everybody wants to know what you think what for you was the critical piece or pieces of evidence, Amy, I'll ask you first, that that made you feel confident that this guilty verdict was the right one? Well, the witness testimony was very believable, and the Kennel video definitely played a major part and his testimony. Yeah. Yes. Murdoch's testimony. Yes. What about when he, there was a, you know, throughout the trial, there were a lot of witnesses saying, that's him, that's his voice. When he got on the stand, Gwen, and said, yeah, that was me. What did you think? How did that strike you? Well, first of all, I couldn't believe that he was taking the sand. And when he got on the sand, I was like, okay. So it was him. You know, I don't know him, so I never, you know, knew his voice. But I realized it was him. And in a candle video, that just kind of sealed the deal. Do you think he should have taken the stand? No. What about you, Amy? No. He didn't help himself? (laughs) No. No. If I was him, I don't think I would have. But I think that he believes that he's so convincing that he felt like that was his, you know, last resort. The financial crimes, when, when the state introduced all of that evidence about the, the past financial crimes and the money he'd stolen from clients, the money he'd stolen from, for the, from the firm as well, did that impact your decision at all? Did that make a difference? Well, um, we could only consider it as part of the motive. Um, it helped showing that he was very convincing and manipulative. And so it made sense. Let's talk about his testimony a little bit more because he was very emotional. People watching from the outside thought, you know, maybe this will be compelling to jurors. Did you 
believe him? Did, I mean, he, did you believe his tears? Did you think he was crying? Some other jurors have said they didn't buy it. What You're shaking your head. No, I didn't think he was crying. He turned it on and off. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't genuine. Do you think he hurt himself by taking the stand? Did he make it worse? I think he did. Yes. Why? I just think that, you know, we already know that he's a lawyer. He's able to be emotional with cases. He's able to be emotional with himself. He knows, like what she said, when to turn it on and off. So I think that we were kind of able to read right through that. Um, After sitting there for for several weeks, and again, the state didn't have to prove a motive. Do either of you have any idea of perhaps why he did it? I don't know if we'll ever know. I think it may have been a combination of things, Um, not just a financial, but everything was weighing heavy on him, I believe. Gwen, what do you think? I think it was um, he wanted to have control of everything, you know, and um, his wife owned the majority of the things that they owned. He had some thinking it was more like greed and being in control. I think the the prosecution had a very good point. It's a storm. You know, at points in time, the defense would take one aspect and be like, you know, it couldn't have been this. And it may not have been that one singular thing. But there's so many things there that contribute to that overall storm that. You know, I think it played a part. They had you guys go and visit the scene, Moselle, this uh, estate where the crimes took place. Was that worth your time? Was that worthwhile? Did you learn anything from that, James? Yeah, I think that we were, you know, throughout the case, you kind of see pictures and stuff. But until you get out there, you're not able to really see how everything plays a part. Um, there were a few things that I made mental notes of that I wanted to check out if we did go out there. And I was able to, con- you know. Take a look at that. What about yeah. you, Gwen? Same here. I wanted to see how big that feed room was, and it was very tiny in person. And I also wanted to see if you could see down there to the feed room, the kennels from the house. Mm. And you could. I know two of you went back the next day after the verdict. You went back for the sentencing. Why, why was it important for you, the two of you, to be there for, for that part of it? Just to see it through to the end. Mm. James? Just like what she said, you know, we spend six weeks there. We bond. We're a very close knit juror at that, or jury at that point in time. So it was important for us to go back and kind of, you know, see it to the end. We had just decided what the verdict was going to be. We at least wanted to see it to the end, see what the sentencing would be. Well, I mentioned that you did your civic duty. You're wearing your Constitution <laughs> tie. It is a lot that we ask of our fellow citizens to sit in judgment of another. It's not easy. It's a great sacrifice in every way. So thank you for being here and spending a little time with us in a case that's gotten a lot of interest. Yes. And thank you for your service. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. We'll have more with them in, in third the third hour. hour. Yeah. We'll chat a little bit more. All right, Hoda, to you. All right, guys, thanks. Uh, Still ahead, a mysterious wave of suspected poisonings in Iran targeting schoolgirls and fueling new protests overnight. We'll have the very latest coming up. But first, Kelly Cobier, she's in Buckingham Palace, where King Charles has now invited Harry and Meghan to his coronation. Hey, Kelly. Good morning, Hoda. Yeah, Buckingham Palace is sending out save the date emails. This after Prince Harry opens up yet again about his childhood and trauma. We'll tell you about it after the break. He would lie his way into their dreams. He was looking for James Bond girls. How fun would that be to be a Bond girl? Then twist them into a nightmare. This guy has done this before. He'll do it again. Until a group of women banded together to put him behind bars and keep him there. You have to participate fiercely, fiercely in what happens next. I'm Keith Morrison, and this is Murder in the Hollywood Hills, an all-new podcast from Dateline. 
All episodes of Murder in the Hollywood Hills are available now. To listen ad-free, subscribe to Dateline Premium on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or DatelinePremium.com. If you ever needed to be persuaded that bad things can happen anywhere, then take a journey with us. From compelling mysteries to in-depth investigations, our Dateline episodes are available as podcasts. Follow Dateline NBC now to get new episodes every Tuesday. To listen ad-free, subscribe to Dateline Premium on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or DatelinePremium.com. Great storytelling with a twist from the true crime original. We're back, 743 now with In-Depth today and this morning. Renewed attention on Prince Harry. Yeah, he's speaking out in another new interview and also confirming that he and Meghan Markle have been invited to his father, King Charles's coronation in May. The question is, will they accept it? NBC's Kelly Cobiella joins us now from Buckingham Palace. Hey, Kelly. Hey, good morning. Yeah, Buckingham Palace uh, is now sending out Save the Date uh, emails and the invitations will come closer to the day. Uh, and a spokesperson for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex say an email about the coronation has in fact landed in the couple's inbox. But with that date just two months away now, their plans still unknown. The holy oil has been blessed, the bell ringers trained, the throne carefully cleaned for the coronation of King Charles III. And now, his youngest son, Prince Harry, officially asked to attend. A spokesperson for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex told NBC News, I can confirm the Duke has recently received email correspondence from His Majesty's office regarding the coronation. An immediate decision on whether the Duke and Duchess will attend will not be disclosed by us at this time. It comes in the wake of Harry and Meghan's Netflix series and Harry's explosive memoir, Spare, the prince critical of his father in the book. Over the weekend, Harry opening up to author and trauma specialist Dr. Gabor Mate in a paid live stream conversation to promote his book. The sharing or recording of the live stream strictly prohibited. Harry said he felt incredibly free when his book came out, but the system that I am some ways still a part of doesn't encourage free living. Talking about his mother, Princess Diana, Harry said... I felt slightly different to the rest of my family. I felt strange being in this container, and I know that my mum felt the same. Harry said he wasn't able to hug his grandmother, the Queen, and said he smothers his own children with affection, adding, As a father, I feel a huge responsibility to ensure that I don't pass on any traumas or negative experiences I've had. When asked earlier this year about attending the coronation, the biggest day in his father's royal life, Harry said... The door is always open. The the ball is in their court. Lots of things to consider when it comes to them attending the coronation. What role could Harry and Meghan play, if any, if they do come? And where would they stay after being told to vacate their home, uh, Frogmore Cottage in Windsor? Uh, and another thing to keep in mind, Hoda, May 6th, the date of the coronation, is also their son Archie's birthday. Hoda? All right. Uh, Kelly Cobiea for us there at Buckingham Palace. Kelly, thank you. Scheduling issues. Yes. <laughs> Royals, they're just like us. It's yes. also the Kentucky Derby. So. Oh, wow. Well, oh, okay. I'll we'll be wearing hats no matter <laughs> yes, what. Exactly. Yeah. What do you got on your weather map? Uh, we do have a lot of weather to talk about. You know, we've got this big storm system that's making its way onshore out in California. That means more rain and mountain snow. We also have this little quick moving system that's bringing some snow to Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. This will eventually move into the Northeast too. Swipe us with a little bit of snow and then move on. But on the other side of that, we've got 
possibly some record warm temperatures across the Ohio River Valley. Temps running about 10 to 20 degrees above average. So enjoy it for today. And that's your latest forecast. All right, Dylan, thanks. Coming up, everybody's talking about this. Chris Rock's long-awaited response to that infamous Oscars slap one year ago. How folks are reacting to his message to Will Smith and his wife during that historic live special on Netflix. Coming up, we're going to get you ready for it. You know, it's tonight. Oh, The Voice. The Voice. The Voice. Voice. Back. We've got one of our brand new coaches. So happy that he's here. Chance the Rapper. We're going to tell you everything you need to know about that. The big premiere tonight. Mal Horn there. He's, it's the vets against the newbies. He's oh. revealing something about the chairs I never knew. Ooh, we'll Ooh. save it. That's a good tease. Yeah. Awesome. 